one of the most respected physicians in Europe, plans to announce his cure for one of the great scourges of mankind, and it attracts physicians from all over the world, including the physician that would write the Sherlock Holmes books. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. John Russell. We will be exploring this great story with author Thomas Goetz in his book, The Remedy. Thomas, welcome to the show. How did you get interested in this story? So it started back in 2005 when my father sent me a copy of the New England Journal of Medicine, which was a thing we had delivered to our house every week. And in that issue, there was a little essay, a page and a half, about this encounter between Robert Koch and Arthur Conan Doyle and this odd historical footnote. And I thought, there's a story in there. There might be a book in there, in fact. I just kind of had it in my back pocket for about eight years until I finally decided to go ahead and do something about it. So as physicians, we always heard about Koch's postulate, but never really heard a whole lot about who was Robert Koch. Can you expound upon who he was? So at the beginning, Koch was just a country doctor and a medical man in an age where medicine was not given much shrift. People didn't think it was much good for anything. And so he very much became a kind of self-made scientist. He got a microscope and he started inspecting the blood of local farm animals. And all of a sudden, he found himself at the forefront of the dawn of the microbial age. He was a pioneer of bacteriology and was one of the first to, in fact, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that germs could cause a thing called disease. And all of a sudden that opened the door to a whole new conception of medicine and a whole new conception of what humanity could do against disease. So he kind of became a little bit of a scientific rock star, did he not? Kind of starting to follow some of his seminal theories? Yeah, a rock star in the most boring possible way, I suppose. Um, to the extent <laughs> that he was he was kind of a reticent German. You know, he had a very high, reedy voice, very nasal voice, and was not much of a presence in a room. But the quality of his science was impeccable, and indeed it was, it was of a quality that, that the world had never seen before. And that rigor, that kind of diligence that he paid to his science was really what paved the way for the whole world to start believing in this thing called germs. Before Coke, germs were something that were incredibly controversial, and indeed the majority of medical men did not believe in germs. And after Coke, the proof was so undeniable and irrefutable that the very mainstream of medicine had changed. So he identified anthrax, correct? Yeah, that was his first breakthrough. So anthrax was the first breakthrough, and it was actually a disease that had a great effect in agricultural communities and also sometimes would even and cross over and afflict humans. It was quite devastating in agricultural Europe of the time. His next great triumph was to identify some of the diseases behind infections, such as strep and staph. And he went from there to identify tuberculosis and cholera, and pretty much just going down the list of the greatest plagues of mankind at the time. So talking about one of his contemporaries, can you talk about Pasteur's status about the same time period? As much as Koch was kind of the stereotypical reserved diligent German. Louis Pasteur, who was a few years older, was very much the typical flamboyant Frenchman. He was a very flashy scientist and was one who was very savvy about publicity. And so his discoveries were much less thorough in the sense of their scientific quality, but they were quite compelling to people, especially because they often helped explain some of the mysteries of food and alcohol that were so you know, important to people's everyday lives. When Pasteur finally started to take a step towards human disease and started to basically look at germs that caused human infection and human disease, he came into direct rivalry with Coke, and it really set all of European science on fire with what became a, a very public and, and rather embarrassing conflict between the two men and indeed their whole schools and nations behind them. Now, do you think this is just kind of a nationalistic kind of pride that led to them being such rivals, or was there some other story behind it? It was certainly fueled by nationalism. This was right on the heels of the Franco-Prussian War, where Koch served in the German forces, and Pasteur was a French patriot, and his son served on the French side. And of course, the ending of the Franco-Prussian War set up the roadmap for World War I and World War II, 
behind it. The wounds were very raw. But I think more than that, more than just nationalism, it was also a personal kind of enmity that really came about because both of them wanted the respect and recognition of the other. And ultimately, the fact that they were so petty and so much lost in the sniping of insults, and they were doing these really childish insults to each other's scientific methodology and, and the quality of their findings, when really all they wanted, I think, at root was the respect and recognition of the other. But they were human beings, and they were reluctant to actually admit to their errors. I mean, it's kind of refreshing to hear these larger-than-life people are just as petty as <laughs> petty as, uh, as we could be. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. I think that's one of the fun experiences I had in writing the book, was really getting to delve into the letters and the kind of day-to-day foibles of these great men of science. And I said at the beginning of the book how science is not preordained. History is written through failure as much as through triumph, and certainly that's the story of science. But it's also a story that is written through petty ambitions and rivalries and competition. And in many respects, that competition between Pasteur and Koch was what propelled this great age of science and really propelled the world into the age of modern medicine. So we have a lot to thank for the small-mindedness that they were showing at the time. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and we're discussing the book The Remedy with author Thomas Goetz. I think anthrax really epitomizes kind of Coke and Pasteur, kind of the rivalry. Could you want to just kind of talk through kind of how each of them approached anthrax? So Coke was first to identify anthrax. He was able to identify the bacteria. And then a few years later, Pasteur came along and actually had developed a vaccine for anthrax, a vaccine that would work on livestock. And as important as Coke's discovery of the bacteria, of the cause was, it was far more useful and much more of a triumph to actually come up with a vaccine or something that would stop the disease. And so that ability of Pasteur to actually go the next step beyond causation, but to actually create some kind of curative or preventive agent was one that he showed with first with anthrax and then a few years later with rabies, which was another disease that would afflict livestock and would often cross over in quite horrible ways to humans. So that ability, that kind of panache that Pasteur had with vaccines was something that Koch was quite embarrassed about and jealous of. He was jealous that he, for all his triumph of discovering causation, he had not yet delivered a curative agent or something that would actually change people's lives quite specifically and work as an antidote or as a remedy. And that, of course, was what got him thinking that he finally had a remedy for tuberculosis, which really was the biggest killer of humans in the age. And so if he had the remedy, it would have been the biggest triumph in the history of medicine. What was Koch's treatment tuberculin? What was it really like for patients? When tuberculin was first announced by Koch, it was, a, it was a secret remedy. He wouldn't tell anybody what was actually in the liquid. And so people were injected with this mystery potion, and it had some rather profound effects depending on the amount that was injected. The standards of human experimentation were very raw at the time, and there were really no guidelines or principles for how much of a dose to administer to people. So when they were dosed with these full syringes of the tuberculin, which was in fact dead TB bacteria, so it actually provoked this really quite profound immune response in the body by people who had had been exposed to TB, which was to say pretty much everybody in the population at the time. And the effects were rather immediate and rather violent. People were overcome by nausea, by vomiting, by diarrhea. They were incredibly flushed. They had a very high fever for hours or sometimes days. Sometimes, in fact, the dose was so strong and the effect was so strong that people died of the treatment itself. It was not at all something that should have been administered lightly. And in fact, the kind of specter of this grand, massive experiment really was in some sense the largest experiment on humans ever conducted in the history of mankind. It was something that just struck some people with horror as there were so few rules in effect at the time. So how does Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, 
how does he suddenly get linked into the story with Coke and Pasteur? So thank you for mentioning him because he's essential not only to the book but also to the kind of progress of history here. So Conan Doyle, like Coke, was a anonymous country physician, and he was observing and a great fan of both Coke's and Pasteur's. He was a, very much a believer in what was called scientific medicine, this new age of medicine, and Conan Doyle believed that he was a quite proud practitioner of scientific medicine. So Conan Doyle was engaged as he tried to make his way as a writer. He would occasionally write essays explaining to a general population what was so important about Koch's discoveries and Pasteur's discoveries. And he, in many ways, became a translator for the general public of this new kind of science, science that otherwise was quite arcane and quite bound by the doors of a laboratory. So that was Conan Doyle's first role, was as a translator. And then, ultimately, through the character of Sherlock Holmes, he really took these notions of science and this notion that, that science can solve problems, can help people, imbued it in this scientific detective, and with that character of Sherlock Holmes, really helped the idea of science go mainstream. So Conan Doyle then wants to travel to hear Koch talk about his remedy for tuberculosis? Right. This is the high point of the story and of the book, where Robert Koch announces that he has a cure for tuberculosis, his remedy, and that it will be demonstrated in Berlin. And so the world comes flocking to Berlin all at once. Part of the flow is Conan Doyle, who decided that he wanted to witness history up close and personal. And so he talked a newspaper, a London newspaper, into assigning him a story. He made his way quickly, dashed over to Berlin from London, and was there at the scene. And, and I'll spare some of the details, which were fun to spell out in the, in the book. But ultimately, what Conan Doyle ends up doing is doing the math and investigating in a kind of detective, proto-Sherlock Holmes kind of way, doing the investigation on whether... Coke's remedy would in fact work. And to his great chagrin, he realized that this remedy would in fact actually aid no one, that it would not be the great solve that Robert Coke had wished and had claimed it would be. How do you think this impacted Coke's legacy? It was actually a very interesting next few years for Coke because he spent several years trying to defend his remedy, which by this time was called tuberculin. So he tried to defend tuberculin as somehow curative. Those hopes, of course, were dashed, and so he, he ended up in some sense fleeing Europe and trying to find a path in Africa and through other diseases. By the time he returned to Europe, he was witness to the first Nobel Prizes being handed out for medicine. And to his embarrassment, those first Nobel Prizes were handed out to people who had been his assistants in his lab. Koch was overlooked because it was thought that he had indeed embarrassed science so gravely. Ultimately, though, he finally had vindication in, in 1905, the Nobel Prize, and his reputation was somewhat restored. So how did this impact Arthur Conn Conan Doyle the physician? Did he hang up his practice of medicine? So ultimately, this one trip inspired Conan Doyle to abandon his practice in the town of South Sea and to move to London, where he gave a half-hearted effort to trying to be a physician, but ultimately was inspired just to write the story and started writing the Sherlock Holmes stories, which became his calling card. They immediately struck a note with the populace of England and Europe, and he was on his way to becoming the famous man we know today. So Conan Doyle went from being a medical writer reporting on what Coke was doing to a fiction writer? So he, like a lot of people, was captivated by all the literature of the day. There was a huge kind of eruption of publications, magazines, newspapers in the late 19th century, and Conan Doyle saw an opportunity to participate. He had gone into medicine very much as a family obligation, but his passion was writing. And for many years, he tried just to kind of do it on the side, and he wrote scientific publications for The Lancet and the British Medical Journal. He wrote more fanciful essays, and then he started to write fiction short stories. And those short stories were well-received at first, but certainly not the bestsellers that we would associate with his name today. So how did he develop the Sherlock Holmes character? Holmes was really an amalgam of a few different inspirations that Conan Doyle was exposed to, largely in medical school. The, the most prominent one was Joseph Bell, 
who was a rather famed clinician and diagnostician at the University of Edinburgh and was a professor of Conan Doyle's. Bell could spot somebody's origins by the dirt on their shoes and get the cut of their brig, so to speak, by virtue of what would be to most people indistinguishable characteristics. So Conan Doyle was very much inspired by Bell, but he also, I think, infused the Sherlock Holmes stories with this idea of science as a cure, the idea that science could do something. And that was something that was not just from Edinburgh, but really was part of the tide of Europe at large in those years. It was very much kind of an era of emerging science, and I think really Sherlock Holmes and those stories really helped make science something that the public at large could really believe in and understand. So was Dr. Watson based on an actual physician, or was it Doyle's incantation of himself? I think that's mostly it. I think if you think of his intelligence, he's much less than Holmes. But actually, some of the characteristics of Watson that we don't necessarily give him enough credit for is he's very broadly learned. He knows the arts, he knows the sciences, he knows medicine. And that context of Watson's broad learning is really what helps make the stories come alive. After all, it's Watson who's writing the stories. So I think very much in Watson, Conan Doyle saw himself. What was the impact of Sherlock Holmes on the populist view of science in the society of the day? Late 18th century was an age of science, and it was an age when really for the first time science could bring discoveries that really impacted people's lives. This was a few decades after Darwin, a few decades after the great discoveries of paleontology. All of these kind of amazing things where the natural world seemed to be opening up in all sorts of ways. But those discoveries, even the kind of great profound insights of Darwin, didn't change the day-to-day lives of ordinary people. And that's what was starting to happen in the late 19th century in medicine. A lot of that was through the work of scientists like Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur. And that kind of idea that science could change people's daily lives, I think, really was something that Conan Doyle was captivated by. And it was something that he really imbued into the home stories. Were there things in the home stories that foreshadowed kind of future advances in forensic science? Yes, there were a few things. Conan Doyle was an avid reader of scientific literature, and there were a few things that he put in Holmes's first kind of discovery was this blood test for hemoglobin so that a stain on a shirt could be actually identified as blood. And that was something that didn't exist when Conan Doyle wrote it, but in the next few years, actually, it, it was invented and created. Similarly, things like fingerprint identification was an idea that was kind of spinning around, but Conan Doyle was one of the first people to actually put it into those stories, and those kind of ideas really took the public imagination by storm. And the one point that I think brought the story full circle is Ehrlich became a big fan of Sherlock Holmes. So Ehrlich, like a lot of scientists, he loved reading stories that were a little bit like science. So he adored the Holmes stories and, in fact, had a signed photograph of Conan Doyle by his desk. Thomas, a wonderful book, and and thank you so much for being on the program. It was my pleasure. I'm so glad you liked it. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit reachmd.com forward slash book club to download this podcast and others in the series. Thanks for listening.